Welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I'm examining one of King's big ones. A divisive novel within his ongoing Dark Tower series. The tale of wizardry, witchcraft, of love and sacrifice. The imagery rich and beautifully detailed story that expands the already fleshed out mythology of the multiverse that he had begun in earlier installments. A novel that begins on a train, ends with the Emerald City from the Wizard of Oz, and returns to the plague decimated world of the stand. It's the tale of Roland the Gunslinger's most formative period of time where the boy became the man we know him to be. The tale of his first love, which, unsurprisingly for our gunslinger, is a doomed one. And during these pages, we see why he's both a romantic and as heavily guarded as he is. The novel is 1997's The Wizard and Glass. Like I said, this novel is divisive among King fans. For fans of The Dark Tower, many either love it or hate it. And I can see both sides. Now, personally for me, this was a huge novel. Huge, guys. This was the first new Dark Tower book for me. Up until this point, when I had begun to read Stephen King, he had already published The Gunslinger, The Drawing of the Three, and The Wastelands. So for me, there was no waiting period in between those novels. When I finished one, I simply picked up the next one. Until I got to The Wastelands, that is. Then, like... Everyone else who'd entered Midworld before me, I had to wait. So during the introduction of 1996's The Green Mile, when he mentioned that we'd be seeing a new Dark Tower novel soon, my level of anticipation and excitement shot through the roof. And his acknowledgement of my having to wait was reinforced with his anecdote of a fan sending him a picture of a teddy bear with a note saying, if we don't get a new Dark Tower book, the bear gets it. It was then then I learned that I wasn't the only one. That The Dark Tower was a series that was just as loved and one that caused just as much anxiety from anticipation within others as it did me. And on top of it, to make matters worse, mean old Mr. King ended the wastelands on an insane cliffhanger. How dare he make us wait when our heroes are locked within the belly of an insane sentient train? How can we go about our day when their future is so uncertain? Well... 1997 provided an antidote to this particular dilemma. And not only do we get a resolution to this cliffhanger, but for those of us who want more information on the mysterious gunslinger himself, this novel provided answers that we hadn't even known that we'd asked. That means that while the novel begins with the resolution from the previous installment and ends with the quartet confronting a character from both Roland and our own pasts, 
means that the bulk of this story is set firmly within Roland's past. For all intents and purposes, Wizard and Glass is a flashback novel which has alienated a number of fans who wanted to know more about the characters they've gotten to know over the course of the last three novels, who wanted to know how these characters progress closer to the tower, not how Roland first stepped upon his past, or the Cotet of which he was part of before he was the din of the Cotet we've come to know and love. However, for many more fans, of which I include myself, I could not get enough of this flashback. To me, it was important to learn how Roland became the man that we've come to know. And the vivid descriptions of the past are important to serve as a point of contrast as the descriptions detail the world before it had moved on. Plus, I mean, it wasn't like this hadn't been built into the DNA of the series. Remember that the first Gunslinger included flashbacks to Roland's time in Gilead before Farson overthrew the affiliation, when Roland became a Gunslinger and bested his teacher despite Martin Broadcloak's machinations. So it should come as no surprise that King decides to return to the events of this time, picking up immediately after and learning what Roland's next steps were after besting Court. And because King has had two novels in between to flesh out the mythology and get a better handle of his world, it means that when King revisits Roland past, it's a much more nuanced place, and it makes me want to see a series of novels of Roland, the young gunslinger, with his friends fighting against Farson's forces. Seriously, guys, this flashback, it's incredible. During the events of the drawing of the three in the wastelands, Roland grew very nostalgic during the time spent with his best friends. So it's important that we get to know these friends, and that's what Wizarding Glass does for us. On top of this, we get to see how Roland, during a time of war, fell in love, and the price he has to pay for it. And the tale of Roland and Susan Delgado is both beautiful and heartbreaking. And on top of it all, we have the Wicked Witch of the West, the man behind the curtain, and the Emerald City itself. And then for Stephen King fans... This novel has shout-outs, Easter eggs, and so many fanboy-pleasing moments. For one, as I stated earlier, we revisit the world of The Stand, which is awesome and crazy in of itself. And if we're going to revisit the world of The Stand, we have to check in on The Stand's big baddie, the one, the only, walking dude himself, Mr. Randall Flagg. This is the novel, guys, that truly confirms that what we've long suspected, that Randall Flagg has been both Martin Broadcloak and Walter O'Dim this entire time. So even though we've seen Roland Walter face off before, the fact that we get to see Roland go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the incarnation that gave nightmares to both the characters and the readers of The Stand is an incredible moment and creates a comic book-styled crossover for his different properties. This novel goes to some truly insane places, and it's one that I've picked up on many occasions. When you ask me what my favorite Dark Tower novel is, I tend to say Wizard in Glass. The challenge for King was not that he'd have to write a love story, but that he'd have to write a teenage love story. And in order for it to work, it would need to be believable. Love is one thing. Teenage love is another. On one hand, it's melodramatic and all-consuming. But on the other hand so raw and fresh, it comes with a purity that can't be duplicated later in life. King knows that he has to tap into that balance, and I'd say he does. When you're young, everything hurts. And when Roland looks back, 
He hates himself for having moved on from that pain. As King writes, his heart had been broken. And now, all these years later, it seemed to him that the most horrible fact of human existence was that broken hearts mended. It's little insights like these that he slips into this narrative that make it so truthful while at the same time being able to tell a story that is just so high concept and imaginative in a world that doesn't exist with our own within within our own and includes fantastic larger than life characters you know there's an honesty to it and it's a novel that just does an incredible job at giving us the definitive look at Roland the Gunslinger so I can't wait to get into this, guys. But first, I'm going to read a listener email. And this one's from Quinn. Hey, this is Quinn again about The Mangler. For some reason, I just now got around to listening to the Shawshank Redemption movie review. And I see that you respond to my email. So I apologize for being late to respond back. Anyways, I thought that I would talk about since there are sadly no constant readers to be found around me. As I first started reading The Mangler, I remember thinking, wow, this is just a little too far, a little too absurd. I mean, really, a haunted laundry machine? Just saying it sounds ridiculous. But then I read the story. And I was wrong. It's truly a testament to King's writing ability that he was able to make this story work. And for me, he really does. By building up dread with the deaths that the machine has caused, showing that it is really capable of ripping someone to shreds, sets the grisly mood. You know this is going to turn out bad for someone. Just think about getting caught in one of those things with the steam presser in the folder. It's just not a pretty sight. We find out that the machine is possessed. All the ways that something can be possessed came together and basically create a super demon inside it. Or so I remember. And when they get to do the exorcism, it's an amazing scene. At first, I was thinking that it was just a laundry machine. So what was I going to do? Get up and chase them? And it does! It's great how King takes something so ordinary and unscary and turns it into a death machine. He took all of my expectations and just wrecked them in the best way possible. The exorcism scene was more tense than all those predictable demon movies that are out now that are the same thing done over and over again. It had me literally holding my breath to see what would happen. I think that's what makes this story work so well. The crazy unpredictability of it. It seems tame and silly at first, but it's a crazy joyride once you get into it. The ending where the machine is seen outside the window of one of the characters' houses was my least favorite part, because I wanted that exorcism showdown to continue. I wanted to see how they defeated this beast, but I will guess I'll let my imagination run wild on that one. I know King let his run plenty wild on this awesome story. Thanks for your time and for the great podcasts, Quinn. P.S. Once I got to the lawnmower man, I was thinking that sounded stupid too, but then remembering that I thought the mangler sounded stupid and turned out to be my favorite short story ever, so I had to give this one a chance too. So I gave the lawnmower man a chance, and it just made me laugh. This one really was stupid. I honestly don't know how people like this story. Everything about it was, well, stupid. I hate to be a jerk, but I, can see, I can't see how this classifies as horror. It just made me laugh at how ridiculous it was. Like the, how the mower mows by itself and he eats the grass. It seems like this is the story he shouldn't remember writing because of drugs, not Cujo. It's the only thing by King that I just outwardly hate. Sorry to people that like it. It's just definitely not for me. I'd like to hear what others have to say about it. 
So guys, I love these kind of emails, just sharing your thoughts on a Stephen King story that means something to you and one that doesn't mean anything to you at all. So just make sure that um, if you have something that you want to share about Stephen King, something that you love about Stephen King, something that you don't like about Stephen King, just any thought that you might have, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and I'll definitely respond. I'll share your thoughts on the air so we can continue to build our content together. Uh, also, guys, if you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe and write a review on iTunes because the more subscriptions and uh, reviews that I get on iTunes, it makes the Stephen King cast that much more visible to the outside world uh, and that would just be great. All right, guys, so now what I'm going to do, I'm going to get into the Wikipedia summary for The Wizard in Glass so I will have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. The novel begins where the wastelands ended, after Eddie, Jake, Susanna, and Roland fruitlessly riddle Blaine the Mono for several hours, Eddie defeats the mad computer by telling childish jokes. Blaine is unable to handle Eddie's illogical riddles and short circuits. The four gunslingers and Oi the Billy Bumbler to spark at the Topeka Railway Station, which to their surprise is located in Topeka, Kansas of the 1980s. The city is deserted, as this version of the world has been depopulated by the influenza of King's novel The Stand. Links between these books also include the following reference to The Walking Dude from The Stand on page 95. Someone had spray painted over both signs marking the ramp's ascending curve. On the one reading St. Louis 215, someone had slashed, Wash, watch out for the walking dude, among others. The world has also some minor differences with the one or more known to Eddie, Jake, and Susanna. For instance, the Kansas City baseball team is the Monarchs, as opposed to the Royals, and Nazala, or Nozala, Nozala, is a popular soft drink, Nozala. The Cotet leaves the city via the Kansas Turnpike, and as they camp one night next to an eerie dimensional hole, which Roland calls a thinny, the gunslinger tells his apprentices of his past and his first encounter with a thinny. At the beginning of the story within a story, Roland, age 14, earns his guns, an episode retold in the inaugural issue of The Gunslinger Born. Uh, and just, I'm going to insert myself here. Um, that's a reference to the Marvel comic book written by Peter David and drawn by Jay Lee. The Gunslinger Born retells events from the uh, Dark Tower series and adds to the mythology. Uh, and I have thought about reviewing the Marvel comics, but I realized that, you know what, I don't really want to start to go down that well because I only want to review the things that Stephen King has touched. Uh, the exception to the rule, of course, are the film adaptations. So I guess you could say that if I'm going to review a film adaptation, then what's the harm in reviewing a comic book adaptation? My issue is, is that the mythology gets so expanded in the comic book it doesn't entirely line up with what King does and what he has laid down with the mythology. So I, I'm just gonna, gonna leave it be. Anyway, uh, Roland becomes the youngest gunslinger in memory. He did it because he discovered his father's trusted counselor, the sorcerer Martin Broadcloak, having an affair with his mother, Gabriel Dischain. 
In anger, Roland challenges his mentor Court to a duel to earn his guns. Roland bests his teacher, and his father sends him east away from Gilead for his own protection. Roland leaves with his two companions, Cuthbert Allgood and Elaine Johns. Soon after their arrival in the distant barony of Mehis, so, sorry to inter interject myself again here, but um, there are multiple pronunciations for this particular barony. Um, Magis is one that I've heard. Um, Magis is another that I've heard, but um, I have just always pronounced it in my head as Mehis. Roland falls in love with Susan Delgado, the promised gilly of Thorin the Mayor. His love for Susan Delgado clouds his reasoning for a time and nearly results in a permanent split between him and his previously inseparable friend, Cuthbert. He and his quartet also discover a plot between the Baronies elite and the good man, John Farson, leader of a rebel faction due to Farson's war machines with Mahis oil. After being seized by the authorities on trumped-up charges of murdering the Baronies' mayor and chancellor, Roland's quartet manages to escape jail with Susan's help, destroy the oil, and detachment Farson sent to transport it, as well as the Mahis traitors. The battle ends at Eyebolt Canyon, where Farson troops are maneuvered into charging to their deaths in a thinny. The Kotet also captures the pink-colored wizard glass, a mystical malevolent orb or crystal ball from the town witch, Rhea of the Coos. The globe has entranced Rhea so much that she was starving herself and her pets to death because she spent every free moment watching the visions in the orb. The glass then shows Roland a vision of his future and also of Susan's death. She is burned as a harvest sacrifice for colluding with Roland. The vision sent him into a stupor from which he eventually recovers, at which point the glass torments him with other visions, this time of events that he was not present for but nonetheless shape his fate and Susan's, such as the nature of the wizard's glass. Thus, Roland's sad tale comes to a close. In the morning, Roland's new quartet comes to a suspiciously familiar Emerald City. The Wizard of Oz parallels continue inside, where the wizard is revealed to be Martin Broadcloak, also known as Randall Flagg, who, see, who flees when Roland attempts to kill him with Jake's Ruger and narrowly misses. Flag has bewitched Roland's own guns, saying, Only misfires against me, Roland, old fellow. In his place, he leaves Merlin's grapefruit, which shows the quartet the day Roland accidentally killed his own mother. Roland, it has been explained time and time again, tends to be very bad medicine for his friends and loved ones. Nonetheless, when given the choice, Eddie, Susanna, and Jake all refuse to swear off the quest, and as the novel closes, Kotet once more sets off for the Dark Tower, following the path of the beam. So here we go, guys. Are you ready for my analysis of Wizard and Glass? Prologue. Blame. The prologue itself is just a reprint of the final pages of The Wastelands. If you just finished reading The Wastelands, you can skip this part and move immediately to Part 1. Riddles. Part 1. Riddles. Just so everyone knows, uh, when I first saw the illustration, when I first picked up this book, I wondered if the three bald-headed characters here depicted um, were the three little bald doctors from Insomnia. Chapter 1. Beneath the Demon Moon. 
So it's been six years, guys, six years since the release of The Wastelands, since we were left dangling on the proverbial cliff, more accurately, stuck within the belly of a hungry, suicidal beast. King starts off with a quick description, a great description, of a midtown world. The town of Candleton, full of skeletons, mutated rats, and malfunctioning robots. But we aren't meant to stay long in Candleton, as King writes, when Blaine the Mono blammed overhead, great verb, when Blaine the Mono blammed overhead, running up the night like a bullet running up the barrel of a gun, windows broke, dust sifted down, and several of the skulls disintegrated like ancient pottery vases. Seriously, how awesome is it that he used the word blam as a verb? It's so good. King establishes the tone here with full force. The speeding blame causes destruction wherever it goes. And in an awesome detail, it's going so fast it catches up objects that trail behind it in its speed current. And even though it's been six years, King has not missed a beat. He slips back into the same unrelenting tone as smoothly as if he were a train running along a track. As I've mentioned this before... And that's that King has stated that it's difficult for him to step back into Roland's world, but you'd never know it. These are characters that are so lifelike and so familiar at this point, it's unbelievable that King had any difficulty writing them at all. Roland lets his quartet and the reader know that he doesn't have a trick up his sleeve, that the upcoming Battle of Wits will be played just as he presents it, but he also assures the others that there are forces at work to help them which is reassuring as it seems that the multiverse has been sorry has been conspiring against them for so long. Roland holds conference with his quartet and they establish the plan for the riddling, with each of them asking a riddle in increasing order of difficulty and during the conversation Roland tells Eddie that he'll have to be serious during this. A comment which both wounds Eddie but is also bad advice, as Eddie's way is what will save everyone in just a bit. Whenever Mr. Stephen King has an opportunity to establish the rules of this world. He does so with ability. In the hands of a writer without his skills, the riddling wouldn't feel as important as it does here. Roland establishes the customs that they will follow during the riddling, which harken back to his days in Gilead. And if it's hard to grasp the concept of engaging in a riddling contest with an insane sentient locomotive, King makes us feel as if we're there with our characters, as he describes Susanna's nervousness in starting first, making her think about times in which she would have to speak in school. Now that is something that everyone can relate to, and allows for an emotional entryway into the text. When it's Eddie's turn to riddle, He's establishing that he is out of turn from the customs demonstrated by the others, and it's worrying for both the quartet and the readers. It creates a huge unknown quality about the proceedings. If things couldn't get worse, somehow it seems Eddie has found a way. At least that's how it appears. At first, anyway. After the first round of riddles reveal that they don't stand a chance against Blaine, Roland tells the others that he'll riddle, drawing upon the most difficult riddles from his youth, while Jake will wait in the wings with the hardest ones from the riddling book he'd brought with him from New York. Susanna and Eddie have been tasked with thinking of an idea, and with the focus on Eddie, it should be clear to the reader that at this point he's going to take control of the situation, and despite the lack of confidence and derision from both Roland and Blaine, he's going to save the day. Chapter 2. The Fall of the Hounds We get to know a little bit more about Blaine, 
For instance, we learn that he can heal, as he does with Jake, healing his throbbing hand. And we learned here, when he lists famous beautiful actresses, he includes Edith Bunker. It's evidence that Blaine can make mistakes, because not only is Edith Bunker not an actress, but she's not exactly what you would call a babe either. While it looks like a hopeful moment for our characters, a demonstration of Blaine's vulnerability, it's also something that Blaine holds against them and punishes them for when he powers up at the Fall of the Hounds, a waterfall that King describes beautifully, with two giant chiseled stone hounds, the raging fall and the shining moon reflected in the water droplets. But Bane blasts the sound of the waterfall to punish the travelers for Jake's correction about Edith Bunker. In my review of The Wastelands, I mentioned how wonderful that book was because it makes Roland's world so much stranger than the previous two installments. King continues to do the same here with The Fall of the Hounds. Though The Fall is just a quick pit stop and is never referenced again as far as I know in the page of the Dark Tower lore, the setting suggests an ancient quality to the Midworld that is even older than we had previously thought. King writes, Blaine... Roland said. How is the power of the beam stored in that place? What makes it come from the eyes of yon stone temple dogs? And how do you use it? And who carved them? Was it the great old ones? It was, wasn't it? There was people before them. Or were they people? Roland then admits that the thousand riddles he had once stored in his brain have been reduced to a little over fifty. Roland suggests that what's happening to the world is also happening to him, that his past is being rewritten, reshaped, as the beams crumble and fall. Hours pass, and Blaine lets us know that they are 60 minutes from Topeka, our final destination. That means we have 60 minutes to defeat the Riddle Monster. Chapter 3. The Faraday Goose. We cut to Eddie, who has a memory a good one this time of his brother Henry, who says that it was stuff going down, I'm sorry, who says that if stuff was going down, out of anyone in this world, he would want Eddie to have his back because Eddie could convince the devil to set himself on fire. King has spent the first 40 pages having his characters just take dig after dig at Eddie. And with 20 pages left to go before the end of Blaine, King starts building Eddie up. After Roland exhausts his supply of riddles, and Blaine tears through the ones in Jake's book, Blaine begins to become cocky, taking turns asking the remaining members of the quartet uh, who wants to take turns, first Oi, then Susanna, and not even asking Eddie at all. King writes, Roland also shook his head, and then Jake saw that Eddie Dean was raising his. There was a peculiar smile on Eddie's face, a peculiar shine in Eddie's eyes, and Jake found that hope hadn't deserted him after all. It suddenly flowered anew in his mind, red and hot and vivid, like, well, a rose, a rose in the full fever of its summer. And then Eddie steps up to the plate, and guys, it's awesome. Eddie remembers a scene from the previous novel when Eddie scolded uh, him for telling a bad joke and dismissed him when he tried to explain to the gunslinger that jokes and riddles were one and the same. 
Eddie then realizes that despite his knowledge of riddles and his familiarity with the world, Roland was limited in some ways and his pragmatic, logical nature doesn't allow for the stretch of the imagination. Furthermore, Eddie harps on the concept of a quote-unquote good riddle and realizes that if the rule of the game is to tell a quote-unquote good riddle, then the rule is fundamentally subjective and thusly can allow him to form his own riddles, namely jokes. Eddie begins telling jokes, and when Blaine begins to show weakness, Roland sees what Eddie is doing and backs him, demanding that Blaine answer or forfeit. As Eddie continues his barrage of jokes, Blaine starts to fall apart. The ride grows rougher. They get closer and closer to their destination. There are so many variables in play that we have no idea how this is going to turn out. And who would have thought that joke telling would be as suspenseful as it is? Now, the Dark Tower series has been incredibly cinematic, so when given the opportunity to transform your brain into a theater screen, King does so, and he writes, Blaine, now screaming in the voice of an infant, lapsed into some other language and began to sing. Eddie thought it was French. He knew none of the words, but when the drums kicked in, he knew the song perfectly well, Velcro Fly by ZZ Top. It's the song that played in Lud that caused people to kill each other, and it has an incredible drum beat. It makes the undoing of Blaine so vivid. The glass over the root map blew out. A moment later, the root map itself exploded from its socket, revealing twinkling lights and a maze of circuit boards behind it. The lights pulsed in time to the drums. Suddenly, blue fire flashed out, sizzling the surface around the hole in the wall where the map had been, scorching it black. From deeper within that wall, towards Blaine's blunt, bullet-shaped snout, came a thick, grinding noise. Eddie completely owns this scene. And here's his gunslinger moment. He's locked in battle, and he's consumed by bloodlust. Every word from his mouth is a bullet fired into his enemy. And as Blaine falls apart all around them, Eddie moves up the aisle, gun drawn, ducking easily the electricity that Blaine fires at him. King writes, he kept walking as he bore down the front of the coach, and of course he kept talking. As Roland had said, Eddie would die talking as his old friend Cuthbert has done. Eddie could think of many worse ways to go, and only one better. Eddie drives Blaine to an insanity that it can't come back from and fires the revolver into the charred hole, effectively terminating the centuries-old train. Roland acknowledges what Eddie has done, and Blaine's course comes to an end. Chapter 4, Topeka. Now that the threat of Blaine is out of the way, King has fully ended the thread from the wastelands, and at almost 70 pages in, immediately starts laying the foundation for the rest of the novel. First, they've come to rest in what appears to be our Topeka. Why Topeka, by the way? Well, what state is Topeka in? Even though the novel appears to be in the real world, they aren't in Kansas anymore, as we'll find out later in the novel. Secondly, as they begin to try to make sense of how the train has dumped them in what appears to be their world, a completely silent world, by the way, they hear a noise on the wind, sounding like a handsaw, which sends Roland for a loop and set the stage for what will become the main piece of this narrative, the flashback to Roland's youth. In the meantime, though, King gets us excited for not just this novel, but the remaining ones, letting us know that they are nearer to Endworld. 
And also, just so we don't forget, King reminds us that Susanna is pregnant. King addresses a possible plot point that was raised from the previous novel about the author of the Nightmarish Children's book, Charlie the Choo Choo, Beryl Evans being the author. There was a suggestion that she'd have a part to play. And when raised here, King makes sure that the answer is definitively no. It's possible, I suppose, Roland said. But on measure, I think not. My world is like a huge ship that sank near enough to shore for most of the wreckage to wash up on the beach. Much of what we find is fascinating. Some of it might be useful if Ka allows, but all of it is still wreckage. That's King's way of saying, I have a lot of loose threads to wrap up, so don't expect me to wrap up that one. If you expect an answer from me about this, you're going to be disappointed, and it's going to be your fault. The Ka-Tet try and figure out what had occurred in Topeka to make it the ghost town that it is, and in a nice moment of humor... The gang tries to scrounge up a quarter to buy a newspaper. Roland watches them for a second and then just shoots the lock off the newspaper door. And when they look at the newspaper, the headline makes every Stephen King's fan's heart just gallop a little bit faster. Captain Tripp's Superflu Rages Unchecked, the headline reads. And just like that, ladies and gentlemen, we have returned to the world that we had once spent over 1,000 pages in. The world in which the man in black used an alias that would later prove to be his most popular. The name being Randall Flagg, the villain of Stephen King's masterpiece, The Stand. But keep in mind... That it isn't exactly the same World of the Stand that we saw in either edition that was published. When it was first published, the abridged edition presented a 1970s wasteland. When the unabridged edition came out, we saw a 1990s wasteland. And now we get to experience a 1980s wasteland. However, though they might be a little bit different, King provides an explanation for the differences that actually serves as a grand origin story for the stand. On the subject of thinnies, through which they had passed into this world, Roland says, Thinnies aren't natural. They are sores on the skin of existence, able to exist because things are going wrong. Things in all world sorry, things in all worlds. And even if this place, this when, this where, is not the ka of your world now, it might become that ka. This plague or others even worse, could spread, just as the thinnies will continue to spread, growing in size and number. So already, Susanna has thought of the coincidence of the picture of the hanging man from the streetlight in the newspaper with the hanging man in the city streets of Ludd, and thought of how these coincidences were more like echoes that were growing more and more solid rather than diminishing. Chapter 5. Turnpiking King clarifies that this plague-decimated world is superficially different from our own, as one of the cars is a Takuro spirit, and the Kansas City baseball team is the Monarchs. I'm sure that 99% of everyday life is exactly the same, and we would recognize 99% of it, but little differences like this make the world distinct. There's a great little creepy moment where they encounter the inspiration for Charlie the Choo Choo, despite the fact that we shouldn't expect any more from Beryl Evans. And then the gang hits the way of the highways. While on the highway, they spot graffiti-covered turnpike signs, which fan the fanboy flamed within all of us. Watch out for the walking dude, is one. 
which we should expect from the plague decimated world. But the other one is much fresher and very much unexpected, but not unwelcome. All hail the Crimson King, that one reads. So remember, in Insomnia, King introduced the big bad of the multiverse, the granddaddy bad guy that is trapped within the tower, and his name is the Crimson King. King inches us closer to the moment when Roland begins his story, and Roland net lets us know that he won't be able to tell all of it, but an important piece. In regards to telling his whole story, we find out that this will be impossible because he says, There's no way I could tell you all of it. In my world, even the past is in motion, rearranging itself in many vital ways. By the end of the series, we're not going to get that much more about Roland's past. We'll get the story of Mehis. We'll get the Little Sisters of Illuria, the conclusion of the Battle of Jericho Hill, and a tale within Wind Through the Keyhole, but that's about it. And because Roland's own past is shifting, maybe the reason is that this is all we get because that's all there is. Remember, Roland isn't just a person. He's a mythic figure. He's the archetype of the cowboy. Susanna has talked about echoes. The echoes are recreations of an original sound. Roland is that original sound. Every cowboy trope we've ever seen is an echo. But because he's a myth, he doesn't need a linear story. We don't need the small moments. He exists from story to story, and the stories in between are not necessary. We then have a dream sequence in which Eddie dreams of the rose that Jake had encountered in New York. Our author continues to establish that the Crimson King is now a force to be reckoned with. He might have been absent from the first three Dark Tower novels, but King is sure to make up for lost time as the bulldozer that bursts through the fence to tear down the rose is crimson-colored with the words, All Hail the Crimson King written on it. Gasher is the driver at first, with a hat adorned with a symbol that will wind up serving as the Crimson King's sigil, the eye. The next day, the Cotet discusses the thing in the far distance, which will turn out to be the Emerald City. In the meantime, it's a nice hook, a dangling carrot for us to keep reading. In the meantime, Roland, along with our author, is ready to give us the story that truly formed Roland into the man that he is today. Picking up where we had last left young Roland, having just defeated Court. As Roland tells us, he had finished the day by visiting a brothel, and after a sleepover, is awoken the next day in probably the worst way it could have gone down by his father. And his father admits that he has known of his wife's betrayal for two years. It's a great addition to what we have already known from the first book, and it widens the battle between the forces of the Crimson King and the Gunslingers. It's not outright rebellion as it appeared in the Gunslinger, but there's espionage and surveillance as well. Part 2. Susan. Chapter 1. Beneath the Kissing Moon. It is here, in this chapter, that we meet one of the more memorable characters from the Dark Tower saga. One who is so vile. It is a blessing she appears in only one novel. But because she is so heinous, it's also unfortunate that we never see her again because she's so good in her role as a villain.
What's so interesting about this series is trying to discern what came first. Now, I've touched upon this in previous reviews, and I'll address it again here with Rhea. Basically, Rhea is the apotheosis of all witches. Now, is she a witch? Because worlds are bleeding together, and as a result, the Wicked Witch of the West winds up in the Gunsinger story? Or do we have an image of witches because of Rhea, whose image and essence echoed throughout all of time and space? Regardless of how you want to look at it, she's an important figure in the story, and it's interesting that a story about young love starts with the coupling of a middle-aged and the ancient as Rhea meets with the big coffin hunters. And seriously, guys? The big coffin hunters? Come on. That's a badass name for a gang. But even before they arrive, you have to hand it to King for an incredible introduction to this character. Old, wily, dangerous, strange, two-faced, and loyal to her two only friends, the Cat Musty and the Snake Ermit. During the introduction, King teases the arrival of Susan and the mysterious box that she's been tasked with keeping. The scene setting here is on point. It's a full moon, and I can picture her trudging up her hill while the warbling sound of the thinny vibrates in the distance. If you haven't heard the sound of a handsaw, you should YouTube it because it's a sound that you'll recognize from 1950s sci-fi movies, and it sets the stage perfectly for this scene. And on top of it, she's got a crystal ball. I'll get to this in a lot more detail, but seriously, how awesome is this imagery? So lost in the spell of the grapefruit is she that she almost doesn't hear Susan arriving, and she hurries back to her place. And then we first meet Susan. First mentioned way, way back in The Gunslinger. We know her ultimate fate, but it's still important to get to know her. And here that begins. Learning about her romantic nature, singing about careless love and her sharp perception, knowing when she spots Rhea running back to her hut, she can't let in that she saw her. So she continues singing and then promptly is told by Rhea to shut up. Now, I'm not saying that I applaud Rhea for this, but I can understand it. I don't know about you, but I am not a huge fan of unsolicited singing. While inside, though we know this isn't where Susan meets her fate, you can't help but feel the danger. The novel dovetails into a fairy tale, with a pretty young girl on a path through the woods and a moonlight encounter with a witch. Nothing good can come from this. When Rhea sends Susan out to the woodshed, Susan gets a chance to peek through the window to see Rhea get a look of the grapefruit. And I should note that King is conveying a lot without ramming it down the reader's throats in exposition. Through dialogue and the sensation of a character's natural thoughts, we've learned that Susan's father has died. She's been forced into an arranged marriage with the mayor, which has brought Susan here to Rhea's so that Rhea can test her virginity and spiritual cleanliness. This is a very effective scene that creates an incredible wealth of sympathy for Susan and demonstrates the vileness of Rhea. Rhea's examination is a doctor's visit from hell. It's intrusive, it's violating, and humiliating. It's less of an examination and more of a straight-up molestation. It's a smart way to make us root for Susan, and when we think of her ultimate fate, it makes it that much more sad knowing that the life that she lived and the indignities that she had to suffer. 
Now, Susan leaves were given a timetable for the events of the novel. At this point, it's midsummer, and she isn't to be with Mayor Thorin uh, until the reaping. So we have a three-month window in which to tell our story. And just before Susan leaves, just as we think that she might have escaped the danger, Rhea pulls some witchcraft whose effect we won't get to experience until later in the novel, a hypnotic suggestion, a time bomb that'll explode after Susan loses her virginity. Chapter 3. So we're just over 100 pages in, and really have only spent the last 20 pages in the past. And in those 20 pages, we've met Rhea and Susan and have name-dropped Jonas, DePappy, Reynolds, Mayor Thorin, Aunt Cordelia, and the late Pat Delgado. In 20 pages, we've gotten a good sense of this town and its customs. King, remember, is the master of character building, and it doesn't matter if that character is our hero, our villain, or a C player in this epic like Mayor Thorin which we get a description on page 139. The thing that trembled, sorry, the thing that troubled her the most as she made her way back towards the town was her new understanding of the compact she had made. It was good to have a reprieve, months yet before she would have to live up to her end of the bargain, but a reprieve didn't change the basic fact. When the demon moon was full, she would lose her virginity to Mayor Thorin, a skinny, twitchy man with fluffy white hair raising like a cloud around the bald, bald spot on top of his head. A man whose wife regarded him with a certain weary sadness that was painful to look at. Hart Thorne was a man who laughed uproariously when a company of players put on an enter entertainment involving head-knocking or pretend-punching or rotten fruit-throwing, but who only looked puzzled at a story which was pathetic or tragic. A knuckle-cracker a backslapper, a dinner table belcher, a man who had a way of looking anxiously towards his chancellor at almost every other word, as if to make sure he hadn't offended Reimer in some way. After 20 pages, we learn why Susan has agreed to be a part of this arrangement, to get back the lands that had once belonged to her father. And while she's lost in her thoughts, She's inadvertently snuck up on by the gunslinger himself, a young Roland who, going under the alias of Will Dearborn, is walking to Mahis. I imagine that this part was difficult for King. For a love that has long been mythologized, how do you go about writing its very beginning? What if you sit down to write it and there's just no spark? Or what if it's just not believable? Thankfully, it's endearing enough to warrant a longer-lasting love. Their banter suggests chemistry, and Roland demonstrates how much of a gentleman he is by walking alongside beside her, leading his horse. So far, it's a little bit Western, it's a little bit Grimm's fairy tale, it's a little bit post-apocalyptic. Everything you want out of a Dark Tower story. And as Roland walks her along the path, they pass the Sitco oil refinery, some oil rigs long dead, some still working. The fact that Sitko adds the overall weirdness of the story. And despite her initial denial to ride Roland's horse, Rusher, she gives into her own being, the daughter of the horse drover, and mounts Rusher. 
This scene just works. I mean, it shows Susan's independence and ability to buck conformity, which would frown on a young girl riding a stranger's horse. And the sexual innuendo here is pretty potent. But the thing I like best about it is that Roland is basically the mysterious bad boy with the cool car. Especially once he tells her that he and his friends have been sent on a mission because punishment for causing trouble back home. By the time Roland leads her to her home, Ka has sunk its claws into both of them. And when Roland says that they've been well met, it's true. With their introduction to each other, King has laid the groundwork for their haunting mythic love story. Chapter 4 Long After Moonset Roland returns to camp and King settles back into his relaxed friendship with Cuthbert, which seems more familiar now that we've come to know Eddie Dean. It makes Roland's story in the present that much more understandable. Roland thinks back to his father. We learn more about John Farson, Martin's treachery, and hints about the Dark Tower. We then head to Traveler's Rest, owned and operated by Coral Thorin, and the last time we'd seen a saloon like this, it was back in the pages of the Gunslinger, and that saloon was named Sheb's after the owner who appears here. It's Sheb himself who tickles the ivories of the Traveler's Rest. The fact that Sheb appears here and later in the pages of the Gunslinger is something that King will retcon in the pages of the Gunslinger's re-release when he has his long-simmering revenge of the vestigial remains of the accursed town that had taken his love from him. More importantly, we meet Eldred Jonas, the leader of the big coffin hunters who confirms what the reader has already suspected, that the town fathers are in league with John Farson's rebellion. Jonas and Reynolds discuss the new travelers that have been spotted and their ties to the affiliation. Here, King drops the bomb that Jonas not only knows the affiliation well, but he specifically knows Court, as he had been a classmate of Court, and Court had watched his peer fail his gunslinging test and sent west. Chapter 5. Welcome to town. The boys make their official debut in Mayhees, meeting Sheriff Avery, and the game begins, each side hedging their bets and doing their best to hide behind their cover stories. Then King gives us an extended sequence of the party at the mayor's house, and we see the boys as little gunslingers, diplomats from a foreign land. We see Roland and his quartet utilize different skill sets from the ones that we're more accustomed to seeing him demonstrate in these novels, much in the same way that his time with Aunt Talitha in the pages of the Wastelands was refreshing. And it's during this scene that we are reminded of how young Roland is. When he learns that Susan is Mayor Thorne's ghillie, he's angry. It's an indignant anger sprung from the belief that Susan's plight is worse for him than it is for her. This is just one of the ways that King demonstrates his young love. And what better metaphor could you think of um, for young love than being a wild horse, unpredictable, allowing you to ride it one minute, bucking you off another. Is it any wonder that King incorporated horses as much as he did into this narrative? Chapter 6, Shimi. We step back into Traveler's Rest, where Reynolds and DePappy are enjoying a drink. I'll talk more about the Big Coffin Hunters later in the podcast, but what I enjoy reading about them is the effort that King takes to make them distinguishable from one another. Reynolds with his silk-lined cloak, DePappy with his love interest and his glasses. And here we meet Shimi, 
who has the unfortunate run-in with the Pappy when he accidentally drenches the big coffin hunter with the beer waste. And subsequently silence, and the subsequent silence that follows is taken straight out of a thousand westerns. It's the calm before the storm, the quiet before the bar fight, or the gunfight. The silence that hangs over the bar as the pappy tells Shimi to lick his boots creates so much tension. And when Cuthbert enters the bar to save the day, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Everything, everything, everything seriously about this scene is awesome. The pappy's villainy, his competence in smashing Stanley's face with the gun without looking around, Shimi's helplessness, Cuthbert's bravery, even the dialogue, like when the pappy says... This is no place for a boy such as you. Boys who come to places like this learn bad habits, kid. Dying is apt to be one of them. The standoff is on. Cuthbert with his slingshot. The pappy with his gun. Reynolds begins to flank Cuthbert. King leaves off on a brief cliffhanger to start a new mini-chapter in which he writes... They talked about it in Ham. They talked about it in Hambry for years to come, three decades after the fall of Gilead and the end of the affiliation. They were still talking. By that time, there were better than five hundred old gaffers and a few gamers claiming that they were drinking a beer and the rest that night, and saw it all. The pappy was young and he had the speed of a snake. Nevertheless, he never came close to getting a shot off at Cuthbert Allgood. There was a thip twang as the elastic was released, a steel gleam that drew itself across the saloon's smoky air like a line on a slate board. And then the pappy screamed, his revolver tumbled to the floor, and a foot spun it away from him across the sawdust. Still screaming, he could not bear pain. The pappy raised his bleeding hand and looked at it with agonized, unbelieving eyes. Actually, he had been lucky. Cuthbert's ball had smashed the tip of the second finger and torn off the nail, lower, and de Pappy would have been able to blow smoke things through his own palm. It's a scene like this that shows us the real Cuthbert, how dangerous and capable he is, despite his joking nature. When Reynolds sneaks up behind him, you'd think that he might give up, but he doesn't. He cracks a few jokes, and when Reynolds tells him to put the gun down, he says... I think, good sir, that I must offer my regrets and decline. You see, I've got my trusty sling aimed at your pleasant friend's head, Cuthbert began, and when DePappy shifted uneasily against the bar, Cuthbert's voice rose in a whip crack that did not sound callow in the least. Stand still! Move again and you're a dead man. But through and through, he's still the funny man. After telling Reynolds that if he's shot, the ball flies anyway and DePappy will die. Why don't we let your friend decide? Cuthbert raised his voice in a good-humored hail. Hi-ho there, Mr. Spectacles! Would you like your pail to shoot me? And after having been weakened from pain and showing his yellow belly, the pappy cries off, and before Reynolds can attempt to take control of the situation, Elaine sneaks up behind him and places a knife to his throat. It just keeps getting more and more intense, and it's still not over. Just because the gunslingers have the edge at the moment doesn't mean that they're going to keep it because Eldred Jonas has shown up and places a gun to Elaine's head. Not only are they one-upping each other, they're one-upping each other in badassery because when the big coffin hunter tells him to put the knife down, Elaine refuses. 
And when Jonas is determined to put an end to it all and call Cuthbert's bluff, the alpha predator stalks into the picture and shows the failed gunslinger who's really in charge. Remember, Roland is just a boy, but he's still the Roland we're going to come to love and fear. Holster the gun, the voice behind the sharp tin of metal said. It was empty, somehow, not just calm, but emotionless. Do it now. This goes in your heart. No more talk. Talking's done. Do it or die. The matter is resolved in the sheriff's office, who manages to get everyone to shake, agreeing to a tacit truce with the unspoken understanding that blood will be spilled as a, at a later date, as evidence when Jonas and Roland go their separate ways. Mayhap we'll meet again, Sai, Jonas says. Mayhap we will, Roland says. The demonstration in the saloon only serves to make Jonas suspicious to the true reason the boys are there in the first place, recognizing the gunslinger way within them. Chapter 7, On the Drop. Poor Susan. And that's all that I can think of. In a scene that calls back to moments between Carrie White and her mother, Margaret, we get an uncomfortable fight between Susan and her aunt, Cordelia, who has basically pimped her niece out and justified her actions in her own mind. Worse, she wants Susan to be grateful for it. If you can't hate Cordelia any more than you already do, King lays it on thick, having her scream in Shimi's face after he delivers the flowers sent by young Mr. Dearborn. Susan and Richard continue to play their young lover's game, each taking turns being mad at the other, each in the grips of feelings they can't control, each obsessing over the other. If King hadn't made both characters so damn likable, it would make for such an obnoxious read. After trying to convince herself to swear off Roland, he appears as if out of a dream. King had worked so hard so far to describe Mehis and the drop. The setting is beautiful, a wonderful backdrop against which these characters can fall in love. And when he approaches her, she thinks, run! She told herself in a sudden panic, mount and gallop, get out of here quickly before something terrible happens, before it really is Ka, come like a wind to take you and all your plans over the sky and far away. Knowing what we know about Susan, this thought is incredibly bittersweet. Roland acknowledges what they both feel, telling her that he's fallen in love with her. But his eyes never left hers, and in them she saw some of Roland's truth, the deep romance of his nature, buried like a fabulous streak of alien metal in the granite of his practicality. He accepted love as a fact rather than a flower, and it rendered her genial contempt powerless over both of them. King knows that it can't all be love story, so he makes sure to give us more development on Roland's mission. He asks Susan to tell him what she notices about the horses on the drop, and she confirms her, his suspicion that there's just too many of them. During this conversation, Susan begins to realize that the story she'd been told about her father's death is just that, a story cooked up by those that had killed him in order to keep her in the dark about the business with John Farson. Chapter 8, Beneath the Peddler's Moon. DePappy is backtracking to find out what he can about the boys and discovers immediately that not only is Will Dearborn the son of a gunslinger, but the son of Stephen Dischain. 
The boys, meanwhile, decide to explore the box canyon that holds the thinny, and the scene is Stephen King dipping his toes back into the horror pool. The peddler moon has come out, and as he writes, a perfect summer moon, huge and orange. It loomed in the darkening violet swim of the sky like a crashing planet. On its face as clear as anyone had ever seen it was the peddler. He who came out of the knowns with his sack full of squealing souls. A hunched figure made of smudged shadows with a pack clearly visible over one cringing shoulder. Behind it, the orange light seemed to flame like hellfire. Meanwhile, below in the box canyon, the thinny warbles and plucks a bird out of the sky. It's just great. It's just great scene setting. Chapter 9, Sitko. Susan informs Roland that she can't see him, and then later she changes her mind. At this point, his friends are aware of the situation, and there's a great scene through the perspective of Cuthbert, who can't understand how Elaine and Roland can spend time in silence. It's just a great moment that King takes to just show the character work going on in this particular novel. Roland and Susan investigate the oil derricks and realize that they've been used recently. Roland, I'm sorry guys. I'm desperately trying to sit down on my stool uh, as quietly as possible, but I just can't seem to do that. Anyway, I'm just adjusting the microphone and back we go. Roland and Susan investigate the oil derricks and realize that they've been used recently. Roland lets her know his real name in between makeout sessions and longing looks, all the while being watched through the grapefruit virea. At one point, Susan feels her and commands her to be gone. Soon after, Roland and Susan discover the source of the conspiracy. Farson has sent the big coffin hunters to oversee the gathering of oil for the ancient war machines in order to go to war with the affiliation. Chapter 10. Bird and Bear and Hare and Fish. After an uncomfortable run-in with the mayor that reinforced the reality that time was rushing up to her in less than two months, Susan rushes to her secret place, a picturesque grove by a stream where she's met by Roland, and they give themselves over to each other. King focuses on the emotional beat of the love scene over the physical play-by-play. -play. The entire scene itself, a paragraph, is bracketed by the word ka on either side. It's a nice touch, showing us that this was meant to be, for good and for all the bad to come. This was meant to be. And of course, it's all being watched by Rhea, who waits in anticipation to watch the time bomb she'd planted in Susan to go off. But thankfully, Roland is able to stop her from cutting her hair. And after hypnotizing Susan with the dancing bullet trick Roland performed on Jake and the Gunslinger that had been taught to him by Martin, aka Flag, who performed the same trick in The Stand, Roland learns of the grapefruit. We're halfway through the book, and the end game starts to grow clearer. Interlude. Kansas. Somewhere, somewhen. Here, Roland manages to catch a breath, and King comments on a criticism that the reader might have brought up during the reading, which is, If Roland is telling the tale, how can he relate Susan's side so well? Roland doesn't answer yet, but it's clear there will be an answer, and in the meantime, we are left with the understanding that this isn't just someone telling a story. The universe has stopped itself for Roland so he can tell it. Night is going to last as long as Roland needs it to. It's 
awesome. It's a reminder that the world does not function by normal rules, by any means. It only goes to reinforce Roland as a mythic figure. That even concepts such as time, night, and day slow for his needs. Okay guys, I'm just going to put a pin in it for now. Uh, the episode was very, very long, so I'm just cutting it in half. So this will function as part one of a two-part review of Wizard and Glass. I'm releasing both on the same day, so as soon as you're done listening to this, head on over to part two. I'll see you over there. Love, love, his love. See what love. Don't tell me Once I wore my apron low